Today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 8 and 9. And the last time we, or we saw that David was determined to build God a house, but God had other plans. He was going to build David a house, and in addition to that, David's son Solomon was going to build the temple, God's house. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 8 and 9, and with chapter 8 we're going to see David's conquests, which put Israel in the apex of prosperity up until that point, and chapter 9, the grace he shows to one of King Saul's grandsons, Mephibosheth. Some of these names I just love. I love that name, Mephibosheth. It just has a ring to it. But Thank you. It's going to be one of those nights, huh? Yes. We're going to start with verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Emma from the hand of the Philistines. So David defeats the Philistines, and these are Israel's enemies to the west. And today, you know, I have this in my mind. I've done it so many times, a demonstration on a whiteboard. I can just picture the Middle East with North Africa, and then the Mediterranean Sea, and then the Middle East, and then, you know, Iraq and Iran, going back down to the Arabian Peninsula, back to Africa again, with Israel smack dab in the middle. But kind of like a clock. And it was no coincidence that God put Israel in the middle of all those, at the time, pagan nations, so that they could bring the light of his glory of monotheism to the rest of the world. So what we have is to the West. Today uh, is currently known as the Gaza Strip. It's Gaza. So you can start now, and I'm going to do this, almost like putting an overlay to talk about what, what the place was back then and what it is today. In 1 Chronicles 18, which is a parallel scripture, which you would go through as well, it adds a little bit more information at times, but that tells us that David took Gath as well in other Philistine cities. Two, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. So David defeats the Moabites. These are Israel's enemies to the south, excuse me, east, southeast. Currently the country of what we know as Jordan. It does seem to indicate that a third of the, um, the war party of the Moabites was spared and the two-thirds was uh, put to death. And if you really think about it, in those days uh, when it was customary to kill the entire opposing army, this was actually a show of mercy. We don't really know why. A third of them were spared, but, you know, uh, leave that up to God. Verse 3, it says, David also defeated Hadadezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough, enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezar, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezar and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Betah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezar, 
King David took a large amount of bronze. <clears throat> this is a, a portion of the Bible that, to us in Western culture, you know, we don't necessarily have bordering neighbors that we're constantly in skirmish with, so it's hard for us to understand. Even when we send our soldiers, we send them over there. We send them across the seas. So for us as Americans, it's, it's hard to look at this, and it's a little unsettling, but you have to understand, I studied a lot of archaeology, and a lot of these nations, God gave them time to repent. But they were doing some horrible things. There was incestuous practices. They actually have in, excavated into Jerusalem or the Jerusalem area um, certain civilizations, homes. And they had these little uh, pottery jars with children's bones in them. It's horrible. They would sacrifice their children alive to this metal god that they made and heated up and the children would perish and then they would take their bones for good luck and put it in their own kids and put it in the walls of their house it was sick because they were worshiping false gods false gods we know have a demonic presence behind them so of course demons hate people so in order to put the people in fear to sacrifice to their false gods they would do these horrid practices god would give them time to repent and when they didn't repent uh, it was judgment time for the parents, uh, and, and that's, that's the way it went, unfortunately. So uh, you have to understand the culture was, I, I could go into more detail, but it's just not fitting for polite company, the things that they did in these societies. I hate to say it, but I, I think that we're kind of casting off all restraint too, and we're not quite there yet, but it's not pretty where we're going. Um, it's just, it, just does, it just seems like it's going to get far worse. So David defeats Zoba in Syria, Israel's enemies to the north and northeast, currently Syria. Now, a lot of these names haven't changed. If you go east across the Golan Heights today, you go down elevation and you're into Syria. And the River Euphrates, another familiar name. Uh, the River Euphrates is still there. <laughs> you know, nothing's changed in this geography since the flood. The Euphrates, if you know your geography, runs southeast from Turkey through Syria and into Iraq, which was a very, a lot of museums, the, the old Mesopotamian kingdom, the old Babylonian kingdom. This is, when you really start to study this stuff, it's very fascinating, the history that's in here. So you look at some of these already, in 3,000 years, the name, Syria, hasn't changed. Ammon became Ammon, Jordan. Uh, Gath hasn't changed, it's still there uh, on the Mediterranean, you can do a little research, and the Euphrates hasn't changed, right? So this, the Bible is, is you know, God's word is God's word. It's not only a, uh, a spiritual book, but it's also a geographical and historical book. Now, when we read Genesis 15, what we realize is Egypt was never completely, um, excuse me, Israel was never completely obedient to the Lord, and they never realized their full borders. God said, you can have the land from uh, the, pretty much the great river in Egypt, the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates. Now, today, that would be a swath from the edge of Egypt all the way down to modern-day Iraq. Imagine if they would have taken those borders, lived according to God's word, lived righteously. Um, there'd probably be a lot less violence over there. But they didn't do it. Oftentimes, God has so much for us, even as just Christians today in 2013, and we don't realize our full potential. Sometimes we can be spiritually lazy. We're spiritually retired. Neither one of them are good. Uh, in the women's study on Tuesday, it's... Uh, they're in the book of Esther, 2 and 3, uh, on Tuesday, and we see the heroes Mordecai and Esther. 
Right? They, they gave of themselves. They sacrificed their possible futures to be a part of a bigger thing, a bigger uh, uh, purpose for God. King David here, and sometimes with us as well. You know, I mean, if you look at the heroes in faith in Hebrews, some of the, a lot, none of these people actually strike me as perfect. Uh, we go through the book of Genesis and other books, and we find out in the New Testament as well, the heroes of faith in Hebrews, they were just people like me and you. So I guess the question is, what does God want me to do? What does he want you to do? Are we asking him? Are we realizing our full potential? Again, we can be heroes of faith too, just by believing, just by trusting in him. As insignificant as we think we are, these people thought the same thing about themselves, and now they're, uh, they're in God's word for eternity. But David's conquest brought Israel at this point to the farthest they had ever been. However, a lot of times the Israelites, because they didn't push far, they were either too tired, too scared, too lazy to realize their full potential. And I have to tell you, I think that our society, we've really changed since our grand and great-grandparents in the World War II generation. They sacrificed everything for their children and grandchildren. We live in a society where we don't sacrifice for our kids anymore. We don't care about our kids and grandkids. We just want what we can get right now. The roles have really reversed in a few decades. We could be a part of the complaining, whining, and entitled society, even as Christians, and wanting God to do it all. But I think as we learned in this lesson, David wasn't going to be one of those people, and I don't want to be one of those people either. I want to be like Caleb. I'm going to read. This, is, this guy's amazing. He blows me away. In Joshua 14, Joshua 14, Here's a guy who's 85 years old. <laughs> now listen to him. He waits till everybody else gets their land inheritance. What a self-sacrificial guy. At 85, he decides, you know what? I I'm done fighting for everybody else. I've helped everybody else. Now I'm going to realize my pot potential. And I'm, you know, summating. Uh, it's a summation. But 14.10, he says, And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old, and yet I, I am as strong this day as I was on the day that Moses sent me. Can we all say that? Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day, for you heard in that day how the Anakim were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And I don't know necessarily that he was completely physically as strong as he was, I guess, at 45, but he had heart, and he had, he had guts, and he had gusto, and he knew that whatever, if the Lord promised him something, even at 85, and there's a mountain, and there's bad people up there, I'm going to go up that hill. You know, I love Jonathan. He's got that same spirit. When he went up and, and him and his armor bearer fought the Philistines, that's the kind of person that I want to be, victorious, you know, realizing our full potential. Before we continue, verse 4, I found this interesting. They hamstrung some of the, the horses, and it sounds kind of cruel, but all they did was there's a, a tendon in the back of the hock that they cut to hinder the horse's speed. It makes them useless for war, but they can certainly be agri agricultural horses. And I put in my notes, and a pet. <laughs> I love horses. One day I'd love to own one. 
Uh, so they were good for agriculture. They were good for, I guess, companions, but, and I'm putting in that in there, but they weren't, they didn't have the speed anymore because of that tendon issue. Um, so, and we see multiple places in the Bible where it was the pagans who counted on these horses. Remember, they didn't have, you know, F-35, you know, multi-vector jets. Those things are the coolest things. They didn't have M1A1 Abrams tanks, but they had horses. Now, to them, that was like a tank. You know, that was the best thing they could have. But God often told the Israelites, don't rely on your horses. You know, you have to rely on me. You're always going to be the weaker army, but it's because of me you'll receive the victory. And we have to think about that, too, as believers. Always trust in God. Verse 9, when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezar, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezar and defeated him. For Hadadezar had wars with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David dedicated those to the Lord, along with the silver and gold, that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezar, the son of Rahab, king of Zobar. Zobah. Excuse me. The expression is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So King Toy of Hamath, he's happy that David's conquering Hadadezar because Hadadezar gave him such a hard time for so many years. Uh, Hamath is a, a Hitt- Hittite city north of Damascus, Syria. We talked about Syria on Sunday. A little geography here, just to get it all you know, out on the table, some of these names. Ammon was due east of Israel. Today it's known as Amman, Jordan. Uh, Amalek was on Israel's southwest border. Today it's southern Israel where it borders Egypt, probably in the area of the Negev. So again, nothing's changed in geography. Stuff is all there. David showed the pagan nations something as well. And, and you know, it's, it's, if you don't know the Bible really well, it's hard to see this. But this was a good witness. Because remember, these pagan peoples relied on grotesque-looking gods. And even in our culture, there are people that will have displays of these weird-looking gods. And they say, oh, that's my god that I worship. It could, like, could look like an animal or a created being or a, 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 a grotesque version of a person. What he showed them was, you guys got to throw those idols away because they're not helping you win. You know, there's only one God, and he's not going to make you do things to your children. He's not going to make you live you and have you live in fear. Some people today even worship gods that if they don't do certain things, they're in fear. That's not the God that we serve. So this really was a good witness of David conquering these areas and these people looking at their idols and going, ah, oh, these things are worthless and just throwing them away. But David did not live in victimhood, as the Israelites did for so many years. And again, we want to live in victory, not victimhood, because that's a bad witness as well. You know? Our society, unfortunately, is starting to encourage victimhood, but we as Christians need to tell another story. You know, we, can all be, uh, we can all be victorious. We can all have victory in some way in our lives. Um, we really got to turn to him, though really got to turn to him. Spoils of war, uh, just to parallel 1 Chronicles 18, David used these, you know, he got the bronze, he got the different materials, and he preserved them for building the temple. So he wasn't allowed to do it, but he did, you know, retain them so he could give them to his son Solomon. And David had vision. David was thinking ahead, he was thinking in the future. 
Again, we need to do that as well. Not just get caught up in the here and now. There's a whole, if the Lord tarries, you know, we could have 20, 30, 40, 50 years to go. Do we have vision? Do we have vision as Christians? Two scriptures, one uh, Proverbs, or excuse me, Hosea 44, 6, it says that my people perish for lack of knowledge. In Proverbs 29, 18, it's for lack of vision. People cast off restraint. They're just, they're, it's, it's mayhem, it's confusion. Right? My long-term vision, if the Lord tarries, is to pour into others. You know, for those that say, you know, I'd like to be a pastor one day, I'd like to be in ministry. Um, let's talk about that. Because if the Lord, decades later, I'm going to get old. <laughs> so is, you know, my, my pastors and elders. Uh, and there needs to be something needs to happen when we, you know, can't see that well and we can't put thoughts together that well and pour into somebody else, right? And for some of us, it's happening already. <laughs> the good thing is I'm getting farsighted, so I can still read the words off the page, but if it's too close, it gets blurry. So that's perfect for the pulpit. I'll take it. That's okay. So leaders must have vision. Uh, as, as individuals, we also need to have vision as well. Verse 13. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilod, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Zeruiah was the scribe. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. Yeah, there's some heavy names there. Remember, it's, these are transliterated from, from Hebrew. Sounds funny to us, but each one of these names means something. As we're going to see, actually, chapter 9 is short. We're going to see that with Mephibosheth. So just to any other names that are still outstanding, Edom is the, was the southeast border of Israel. Today, it's also modern-day Jordan. Jordan's a pretty big country. As a matter of fact, in the end times, the rock city Petra in Jordan is actually going to allow fle- fleeing Israelites that are being persecuted in, in our future, uh, safe refuge. And that place is tremendous with latrines and, and uh, you know, uh, cisterns that would hold drinking water. It's incredible how they'll be preserved in this wilderness city. The Valley of Salt was by the Dead Sea, right? What we know is the, the Dead Sea where the plethora of mineral deposits are. And uh, it's pretty much Edom south of the Dead Sea. Now, some... One, some manuscripts kind of go back between the Syrians and the Edomites, not a consistent inconsistency. Where it makes sense is that uh, in those days, and still even today, did you know that even in the Revolutionary War, uh, in the Civil War, uh, there was always mercenaries from somewhere that you could hire. You know, the Hessians were the in the Revolutionary War, the British hired the Hessians from Hesse in Germany to help fight the American colonists. So there's, ever, ever since there's been war, there's been people that have raised up, they've been warriors, to throw their lot in. You give them a certain amount of money and they'll fight. So it does appear that the Syrians came down to Edom and helped them against the Israelites, but they, they lost anyway. The Cherethites and the Pelethites, uh, southwestern border of, of Israel, they were David's bodyguards. They were like the Secret Service, is, is a good analogy. Ahalud was the recorder. All great kingdoms had historians. 
I love this Bible that I have. It's, it's been with me since I've been saved. There's pictures every so often, and it just shows like a, an obelisk or some clay carvings or some, and it basically, uh, every Syrians, Assyrians, the Israelites, all these great dynasties, nations, the Egyptians put, um, you know, a legacy of how they fought the wars, uh, who the next king was, very detailed. So how do we know so much about history? Because there's stuff littered all over the Middle East and Africa that tells us about history. We can translate them. Uh, beautiful book, the beautiful thing about the Bible is it is a spiritual book, but it's also a historical book as well as an archaeological book. In my office, I have a stack. You know, for years I've been saving these articles. Oh, wow. They just found, archaeologists just found, you know, the city of Goliath. Oh, yeah, we always knew it was there because the Bible said so, but we needed some guy to go out there with a, a shovel and a pick to, oh, yeah, look, we found it. Yeah, okay. It's news to you, but it isn't to us. So I got a stack of articles that just reinforce the scripture that it's accurate, distances from cities and all that kind of stuff. I would say this, that great victories only come with great faith. David had great faith in God, and God rewarded him. Where are we? I really have to say this, no matter what's going on in my life or what problem I see coming on the horizon, I really believe that it's completely open-ended. I really believe that whatever is coming, that God can fix it. I really believe that, and that's what we have to believe. God enjoys it when we have faith in him, and he works because of that faith. You know, he, he, he gives us good consequences because of that. You know, even Jesus, even Jesus, in some areas, he actually refused to do miracles as we read the Gospels because they had such little faith in God, and they wouldn't change. And he didn't even stay there long. He left because they just would not believe. And in some instances, he did miracles, but because it affected the commerce, they actually drove him out. Was it the Gadarenes or the Gergesenes, one of those G words? Uh, you know, when he sent the demons into the pigs to get rid of the demons, and they went off the cliff. Well, the people were furious because pigs were a big economy. You know, everybody wanted bacon and, and pork chops, I guess, over in that area. And they actually said, please leave this area. They didn't want a chance, another herd, you know, that happening to. Imagine that. So faith is very important. And it is a choice to some extent. So chapter 9, verse 1. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. So David is looking to show mercy to uh, a remnant of King Saul's. Now we know King Saul and his sons died uh, in in a battle with the Philistines. And we know that David and uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, made a a pact that they were, I guess, a non-aggression pact but they were friends, so they, you know, whoever was, God would show favor on, they were going to make sure that they took care of them, uh, and David was going to take care of you know, those left from Jonathan's bloodline. But we know that David also was never at war with the house of Saul. Even though he was getting abused, he would never fight back. 
And we observe this dual nature of David. On the one hand, we just read about how he was a great warrior, and now we're reading how he's merciful, gentle, and loving. And you know, it's not a great example because we can never compare ourselves to God, but you know, God made us in his image. He has a dual nature as well. He does have to deal with sin and rebelliousness, but at the same time, he's merciful. The Bible's very clear, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to go to hell, right? providing a way out through his son in Jesus Christ. And I've said this before, when we die, we really choose the terms. It's, it's kind of, say, be careful with how I say this. God has given us power in that we have power of free will. And when we face God, we face him really on our terms. Isn't that amazing? And, and what do I mean by that? I mean that we can thumb our nose all of our life at God. We could tell him, I'm rebelling against you. I don't want you. I like your creation, pretty flowers, the food, the animals, but I don't want you. And then when we die, we face him in judgment. He's now the judge and has to judge us according to our sins. But even at the end of the road on our deathbed, the Bible is very clear. We can do this earlier or we can do this later in life. We can say, you know what, Lord, I, I'm going to meet you soon, and uh, I, I really am sorry for my sins. Would you forgive me? I do trust in what Jesus did. And God doesn't hold that whole life of 70, 80, or 90 years that we thumbed our nose at him. He's so merciful that even at the last moment, he will accept us into, into his kingdom. But I guess we have the power in that we can say no. It's foolish. <laughs> I think I'm a decent guy, you know, people like me, but... I'm certainly not going to heaven on my own merits. I'm not stupid. I'm going to go covered under the blood of Jesus. So, you know, that's, that's what you've got to look at. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Meshir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore you to all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Remember, in that society, they didn't really have social programs. So if you were lame like Mephibosheth and you couldn't work, you really had to depend on the mercy of others, either to beg or for someone else to take you in and take care of you. So again, unless we understand the culture and we read this, we're like, well, that's, that's odd. You know, we wouldn't say that to somebody who was in a wheelchair. But he said that about himself because he just was, he just was exasperated. He couldn't work for himself. He couldn't walk. And this is what he says. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. This is the king speaking. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Misha, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, 
and he was lame in both of his feet. So this is an incredible story of mercy. And we can make another parallel here, much like, almost like a type of Jesus with sinners. David means beloved or well-beloved. Mephibosheth can mean one of two things. It could mean the shameful thing, or it could mean one who destroys shame. And you can see the power in both of those meanings. Again, in that culture, uh, a parent would name a child, maybe even change their name, depending on their life circumstances. So here's a guy, again, who's lame and it's, it's kind of a sad story. And this is his name, Mephibosheth. Number one. We're going to look at five parallels and then we're going to close. Number one. David looks to show kindness to Mephibosheth. Christ seeks to save lost sinners. Two. Mephibosheth is lame and can't care for himself. Lost sinners can't care for themselves spiritually. And it's sin that cripples us spiritually. Three. Mephibosheth came to David and fell on his face in brokenness. That's the only way for a lost sinner to come to Christ. Not literally, physically, position. We talked about that Sunday with prayer, but a heart issue. When I came to the Lord, I'm like, all right, you know, I can't save myself. I've been trying to do this for 25 years, and I'm ready, Lord. You know, I had to come to him broken. I tried to do it myself, but it didn't work. Four. Mephibosheth refers to himself as a dead dog. The lost sinner has to realize about himself or herself that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our sins separate us from a holy and just God. We have to remember that. And we couldn't be made alive on our own. It had to be through God and the regeneration process. Five, David not only spares the life of Mephibosheth, remember In that culture, if you were a remnant from a former dynasty, boy, you read some of these historical accounts and they're brutal. They just wipe out entire families just in case later on they don't rise up and try to take the the kingdom back. So not only did David not take his life, but he blessed him. Christ not only saves a sinner from hell, which our sin is is where we go when we sin and there's no remedy, but he also shows us grace on top of that as the Lord allows us to eat at his table, he blesses us with a close and loving relationship. As we close, we look at the dual nature of David. Number one, a man of war, intending to protect the lives of the Israelites that he shepherds. He had to do this. Because if left unchecked, this, this, these pagan entities and these people who are doing these horrible things, it started to affect the Israelites, and we've seen that through the scripture. It was like a a spiritual cancer that was going to destroy them. So he had to protect them. He was the, the king. He was their shepherd. But two, a man of mercy and compassion, sparing and blessing the life of a man who can't, couldn't care for himself and part of a former hostile dynasty. We also know that the Bible speaks about the dual nature of God. And again, when we die, we meet him on our terms. Each one of us must also have a dual nature as we go through life, on a, of course, lesser scale than being a king here. But number one, having to be firm at times, showing tough love and strength to those we deal with. And number two, but being merciful and loving as well, especially to those that are most vulnerable. Love and mercy without discipline and strength just breeds bad behavior, manipulation, and the ripple effect 
that it can have on others, it could be devastating with that, without that unchecked behavior. Even as a, a pastor of a church, sometimes things start to spread through the church that I've got to deal with lovingly but also firm. So firmness and strength, though, without love and mercy is cruel and heartless. We need both. Certainly when we're balanced and we're in God's word and prayer and we seek his wisdom, only then will we know rightly and perfectly when we're in harmony with him when to apply both of these and to what measure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word.